on May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that, well, he no longer watches the Browns, but when he does, they still lose. He is the captain. Because they always lose. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week, we are drinking Shiner Holiday Cheer Garage Grade 4 out of 5 bottle caps. Yum, yum, yum. Shiner Holiday Cheer is Bavarian-style dark wheat ale, Dunkel Weissen, brewed with Texas peaches and roasted pecans. May your days be merry and bright, and may all your beers be as delicious as this one. And this great glass of holiday cheer was brought to us by these fine people right here. First up in the garage, beer fans Farah and her father Marty down in Pflugerville, Texas. Pflugerville, Schnugerville. <laughs> Next up, we have Edna. Edna gave us a check, and we can't cash the check, but uh, we wanted to uh, give her a cheers anyways. Edna, this one is for you. Next up, we have Kent in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, wait. Kent requested a shout-out from the captain, so please, sir, do your thing. Kent, I like your chip. Next, we have Valerie in Harrisonburg, Virginia. And next up, we have Danielle in Silverbell, Washington. Silverdale. Silverdale. Schnuggerville. Next, we have Bonnie in Chino, California. It's time to drink all the beer. And last but not least, Captain, a big shout out and thank you to Melissa in Three Bridges, New Jersey. So thanks to everybody for filling up the fridge for this week's show. If you want to help us out with next week's beer run, go to truecrimegarage.com. Click on that donate button. beer run. So kind of interesting how we got this week's case suggestion. We went to go see the black belt of comedians, Michael Lenoci. And he is known worldwide as the greatest kicking stand-up comedian of all time. And while we were there, we got the chance to speak with him. And Captain, this was not a suggested case. He mm-hmm. threatened us. He threatened his, us with, with his that kicking. black belt and the kicking and the comedy. The, the kicking styles. He also has a podcast called Guys Night Out, so check that out. You can see him on tour. He's opening up for the elder himself, the Kuda. The mm, want to fire him. 
Chris D'Elia. And Mike was not the only one to suggest this case. This is a pretty popular case. We've gotten a lot of suggestions for it because it's been covered on the confession tapes on Netflix. Yeah, and this is a case that's confusing and there's a lot of things that aren't clear, a lot of things to sift through. It's going to leave you maybe a little angry, but hopefully we can get to the bottom of this. And that's why you want to gather around because we're going to break it down for you. Gather grab around chair, so we can break it down. Grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. July 13th, 1994, just after 2 a.m. The Bellevue, Washington Police Department are called to a crime scene. Teenagers Sebastian Burns and Atif Rafay return to Atif's family's home, which is located in a quiet upper middle class area of Bellevue. When they arrive, they stumbled onto a horrific scene. Atif's parents and sister had been brutally attacked. Sebastian Burns called 911, asking for an ambulance. for help to arrive, Atif's older sister, Basma, was clinging to life, moaning in her bedroom. Detective Bob Thompson was one of the officers that responded to the scene of the attacks. According to him, it appeared Atif's mother was the first to be killed. Atif's father was the next to be murdered. Detective Thompson said it was overkill, and it looked like someone had hit the man 40 or 50 times. Atif's sister died at the hospital just a few hours after the attack, unable to tell the detectives who had attacked her. This is The True East Murders. 
The clip that was played there, the 911 call, that is 18-year-old Sebastian Burns calling to report that when he had returned with his friend Atif back to their home, back to Atif's home, that they found Atif's mother and father very badly beaten to the point that they believed them to be dead. Mm-hmm. They found Atif's sister very badly beaten um, near death. And they're calling in. They're asking for police. They're asking for ambulance. They're asking for help. They're afraid that whoever did this, whoever perpetrated this attack may still be in the home and they decide to go and wait outside until the police arrive. Now, I've read some reports here that state that the police did have a little trouble finding the location of the crime scene, finding the home that they were calling about. Uh, And as we stated, Sebastian and Atif would have been outside waiting for the police Mm -hmm. and they had to flag down the police to show them where, in fact, the house was. A little background here, Captain, on the Rafay family. The Rafay family was the, the family that was attacked. So the Rafay family of four had just moved to Bellevue, Washington from Vancouver, Canada. The father, Tariq Rafay, was a very talented structural engineer who had worked on buildings all over the world. The mother, Sultana, she had a doctorate in nutrition, and but she devoted her life to raising her children. Mm-hmm. This is Basma and Atif. I so, mean, similar to me. I mean, have my doctorate, but I, I continue to work on the podcast. I have many doctorates from <laughs> many of the highest, um, the highest of points, like Mount Everest, <laughs> from some of the best universities on both the east and west coast. But enough about me, right? Um, Sebastian and Atif, they had been best friends since high school. Both of them were very, I can, you know, I've, I've seen interviews with these guys, read stuff with these guys. I can honestly say they are very smart young men. Mm -hmm. Um, probably more intelligent than me, even though I hold all those doctorates from many very distinguished universities. Now, Sebastian was raised in a loving family with English roots and grew up playing classical cello. Uh, He became a member of the Royal uh, Canadian Air Cadets and was given an award by Prince Edward. Like we said, both of these guys are intellectuals, but the other problem with these two guys is they actually believe that they are smarter than probably what they are and smarter than everybody. They assume a lot of times that they're the smartest guy in the room. Yeah, that just kind of... That kind of just bleeds through them, doesn't it? When you when you yeah. when you see them speaking, and everybody um, knows that kind of guy in high school, where where you know he's smart, all your friends know he's smart, but it's the fact that he puts himself on a pedestal that you're just like, yeah, you know, there's screw a, this there's guy. an arrogance about both of these young yeah, men. It stinks. Atif attended uh, Cornell University, so he he is in his summer year of college, right? Cornell is an Ivy League school, but it was the only Ivy League school that accepted him. So it wasn't like he had a bunch of options. So let's, let's as far as Ivy League schools go. Let's clean up this background information here a little bit before we move into the crime and the crime scene. Um, so the Rafay family of four had just moved to Bellevue, Washington from Vancouver, Canada. During this time, three people were living in the Rafay home. Atif is away at college and his friend Sebastian still lives up in Canada. Now, 
during this night, on this night, when they find Atif's parents murdered mm-hmm. and his sister attacked, Atif had been staying. He had been visiting his family from college for a few nights. And his best friend from high school, Sebastian, came down to visit him while he was staying in Bellevue, Washington. Washington, obviously, much closer to Vancouver than Cornell University. So the two friends, Atif and Sebastian, had been out for a night out on the town when they returned to Atif's home and they discovered that this attack had occurred. So let's take a look at what went down in the crime scene. Is there any evidence to tell us who the perpetrator or perpetrators are? Uh, What are the investigator's suspicions and what are they finding at the crime scene? And we can do that as we go through this uh, sort of timeline here, Mm -hmm. starting with the 2 a.m. marker on July 13th, 1994. So as we said, Sebastian and Atif discover the bodies of Atif's parents and they call 911. This is roughly at 2 a.m. And we know this because the 911 call comes in at 2.01 a.m. Now, Atif's sister, Basma, she then shortly later dies in the hospital from injuries inflicted from that attack. From the time that the boys found the bodies until 8.30 a.m. that morning, Sebastian and Atif are up all night with police, mostly at the Bellevue Police Department. During this time, they are each interviewed separately twice. When asked where they had been that evening, the boys provided a full account, stating that at 8.30 p.m., they drove to a place called the Keg Restaurant for a bite to eat. Mm -hmm. They had a salad, and they each had a glass of wine. Then they went to a 9.50 p.m. showing of the movie The Lion King. After the movie, they stopped for uh, they stopped off at a club, and they left the waitress a tip, uh, a six dollar tip on a nine dollar tab. Mm-hmm. I've actually I've seen this these numbers reported slightly different on this uh, what their tab was and what their tip was. The general thought is that they left uh, what would be considered to be a high, a noticeably high tip for whatever they purchased at that club. Mm -hmm. Sebastian and Atif provided police with their clothing that they wore that evening. They were both examined by um, an alternative light source for evidence of blood spatter and examined for gunshot residue. And both tests come up negative. Correct. The first thing that troubled police was how could Sebastian and Atif provide so much detail about where they had been that evening but not recall key moments at the murder scene. Hmm. Well, I mean, I think one of the explanations would be, you know, you got fight or flight and, you know, anytime they flew. Yes. Yes. They flew. And I think then it's the idea of what can you remember because you're in shock. I mean, it's like the nine one one call and we can break that down later, but uh, some people see somebody that's trying to lie or put on a show and some people see um, somebody that is in complete shock and has no clue what to do. Well, here's my thoughts on their. I personally, I think this is a weird thing for the police to say that this drew some suspicion for them. Mm-hmm. How could they provide so much detail about what they had been doing that evening, but not recall key moments at the murder scene? And and I need to be a little more clear about what they mean by that. But let's get into that here, because first of all, we, we see that they're at a restaurant at 8.30 p- 
p.m. They're not ret- according to their story. They do not return home till 2 a.m. Okay, so that's five and a half hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can provide a lot of detail of something you were doing for five and a half hours. Right. When they returned to the crime scene, when they found Atif's parents, it would have been a, a matter of minutes by the time they would have called 911 and went to that fight or flight mode and flew out of the home and, and remained out by the curb to wait for police to arrive. So you're talking about a comparison of five and a half hours to a matter of minutes. Of right. course, you're going to get more detail from something that you spent that amount of time on. Yeah. So the story is, is that they got home roughly about two o'clock. And then when they entered the home, they were probably only in the home for about three minutes until the 911 call was placed. Right. So, I personally, for me, I don't see anything weird about not knowing that this is where it does get a little weird though. When, mm-hmm. when they are taking, when they're going through the crime scene and they're going through the home, they're asking Atif and Sebastian if, if they had touched any of the victims and Atif can't remember, like most of the time he's saying I might have touched my mom. I, I don't think I did. No, I don't think I did. And that's basically how he answers when he's he's questioned about his mother and his father. Mm-hmm. I may have, but I don't think I did. No, I probably did not. And I understand that we have a situation where he's probably very much in shock. Um, I have a hard time believing that he wouldn't be aware if he touched his if he touched any of the victims. And why would this be a key thing for the police? Well, and this is why I think he could be vague about it. If he is trying to hide something, you would rather be vague about whether you touched one of the victims than to give a definitive answer because they're going to be able to do test on you. Like we said, testing for blood spatter, right. testing for gunshot residue. They're going to do tests on you that will determine whether you are being honest about having touched the victims or not. Sometimes the honest answer is, I don't know. Mm hmm. Now, detectives also point out that the killer or killers may have known the victims. And obviously, we come across this with every case that we cover. That's always a possibility, and usually it's a likelihood. They could find no signs of forced entry. And that is going to be something that could be key here. Because remember, on the 911 call, the first thing that Sebastian says is, there appears to have been some sort of break in there. Mm -hmm. The police are unable to find any signs of forced entry. So what does that mean? Well, could, could the killer or killers have gained access to the home without breaking in possible, possible people leave their doors unlocked. People figure out ways to get into homes. Could the killers or killer have known the victims and were let into the home? That's a possibility as well gained access to the home through one of the victims themselves. Right. Or they got lucky and there was this the door wasn't locked. Or did the killer or killers were they already inside the home when the attack went down and they didn't need to gain entry into the home. Mm-hmm. So those are your options there. If you cannot find a sign of, of obvious break in this, the thought that the perpetrators may have known the victims also comes up in this fact of the crime scene. So Detective Thompson would say that the mother, Atif's mother, was attacked first. She was downstairs. And then we have the father who was upstairs, presumably sleeping. Mm-hmm. 
that he was attacked second in and his how, bed. And how were these individuals attacked? Um, it, it had appeared that it would have been with, with the chief's mother anyway, that it would have been a, a, like a blitz attack that she probably was surprised and struck with a heavy object. Right. So a hammer or a baseball bat or something like that. Yeah. Board, anything like that. Um, that same weapon was used again on a father upstairs in the bedroom as he lies sleeping. That would mm-hmm. be a sneak attack. Pretty much the, he was unaware that he was being attacked probably did not hear his wife having been attacked just before him. So the father though was, was brutalized. I mean, he was hit well, well, just like back to Thompson mom. said 40 or 50 times. Let's go back to the mom real quick. Cause okay. The, Cause she was hit. She was dead. Uh, she, her face was covered. Somebody covered her face probably afterwards mm-hmm. and she was facing East, mm-hmm. which uh, this is a Muslim family. So that would be the direction in which they pray. Mm-hmm. So then let's go to the father. So she was kind of killed, but almost shown some kind of respect after the murder, I guess, uh, if that makes any sense. And then the father is just bludgeoned. Not only bludgeoned, he was he was destroyed. The killer didn't want to just to to kill Atif's father. That person wanted to destroy him. Like mm-hmm. I said. Detective Thompson saying it looked like he had been hit 40 or 50 times and whatever object was used to kill the man had sprayed matter. Yeah, there's blood everywhere. Yeah, not just blood. We got we got blood. We got teeth. We got pieces Mm -hmm. of bone, skin, flesh. There's there's matter all over sprayed all over that room from wherever he was hit and then pulled back up again, struck again. Mm-hmm. And every time you do that, it's bringing a little bit with it when you pull it back up and it's spraying it on the walls and the ceiling of this bedroom. Then we have the sister, the older Atif's older sister, Basma, who is attacked last. And we haven't brought it up yet, but his sister is, uh, she's autistic. Yeah. And I don't know the, I don't know the severity of her autism. And I bring that up because of a statement that the police made. I want to be very clear. This is the police statement, right, not there's mine. Different, there's different spectrums. Yeah. So the police's statement would be that it, this points again that the killer knew the family, that knew the family well, to the point that they would have attacked the parents first and killed the parents first, mm-hmm. attacking the sister last, knowing that she would be unable to call 911. Right. That's what the police had stated. Now to the 911 call, Captain. Remember we had stated Sebastian said there was some type of break-in, and I want to talk about what the detectives say that they are seeing at the home. Not only no sign of forced entry, Mm -hmm. but also just looking at the room and rooms of the home, they're stating that it appears to the detectives that boxes were okay. So the home they had recently moved there, right? So you have a lot of boxes that have not been unpacked and put away. These items have not been put away yet. Right. So whoever broke into this home, quote unquote, broke into this home. They didn't appear to have sifted through items that were still in the boxes. Um, the detective said that it looked like they just tipped over boxes yeah that they didn't really go through anything the drawers were open but nobody it just looked like some people open up the drawer maybe looked inside didn't didn't rummage around didn't pull anything out yes so 
go ahead. Right, and Atif is the one that's going to say, well, my Walkman's missing, I think the VCR is missing. Yes. But uh, this is also an individual, yes, he is the son of the, the parents that were murdered, um, but he hasn't lived in this property for a long time. It, you know, he's been away at school. So, like you said, first of all, the house isn't put together, you know, fully yet yeah. from the move, and then you have an individual that's only been there for a couple days. So now you're trying to say, hey, what's missing? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a lot easier to do when the house is put together. But when the house isn't put together, it all looks like stuff's missing. Yeah. I Here's the thing, though. I, I kind of, I'm going to go with the, and if, if it, for anybody out there that is unfamiliar with this case, you can see what road we're going down here. It's starting to look like the police have suspicions regarding Atif and Sebastian. Right. Okay. And that's why we're going through these crime scene items one at a time. Now I have to kind of go with the, the police's if they're being honest, if they're being unbiased in their opinion, I have to go with their belief when they say, you know, it looks like people kind of staged this break in. I because <laughs> right. they, they would have seen robberies and, and burglaries a hundred times. You know, you you you're a detective. You've been on the force for quite some time by the time you're a detective. Mm-hmm. And you've seen break-ins. You've seen uh, this kind of thing go down. And when it doesn't look right, when it doesn't pass the smell test, it it looks like a setup to these guys. It looks like a staged burglary. Well, like I said, there's a couple problems. First problem is they just moved into the property and the stuff is not put away. So, yeah, you might have seen a bunch of, you know, break-ins and burglaries before but how many times have you seen one where somebody's just moving in my other issue with the police going down this road is the idea that you don't know what this person that might have you know they might have broke in to kill you but there was a reason why they was rummaging through your stuff Mm -hmm. and that reason could be a stack of papers or something Mm -hmm. that you would have no there'd be no clear evidence that this item is now missing you bring up a very good point there, Captain. So we have a chief stating that his Walkman was was taken, uh, a VCR was taken from the home, which seems crazy to have three people murdered just to take a VCR and a Walkman. Mm-hmm. Um, but you bring up a very good point. We have three of the four family members are dead. These people had just moved there. You're right. There are items they could have had that if, if a chief can't say, okay, this item's missing, that item's missing, this stack of papers is missing, we had um, some jewelry that was missing. If he doesn't report something as not being still at the home, mm-hmm. the detectives are going to have no clue that other additional items are actually missing from the home. Right, like you said, I mean, you know, his father was an engineer and he was working on some uh, pretty interesting stuff, so we'll get back to that after the break. But, you know, again, with the mother, he's not going to know if, a piece of jewelry is missing or something like yeah, that. I, so. I tell you what, I, I lived with uh, my father in my teenage years. I lived with uh, my mother before that. And I couldn't have told you, you know, if somebody broke into our home and stole half my mom's jewelry, I wouldn't be able to tell you what any of it was. You know, my father had guns in the home when we grew up and right. machine guns, all kinds of cannons, cannons, um, right. hand cannons. I, and you know what? He um, fancies himself a bit of a collector I wouldn't be able to tell you if the guy's got two guns or if he has 10, you know what I mean? I, I just don't know. It's not my personal belonging. So, um, 
Yeah, I would have no clue. You bring up a very good point there. Well, we'll get right back to my amazing points and the point on your head right after this quick beer break. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL Learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. 
Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors, no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer. Thanks to the menu of chef crafted meals with options like calorie smart protein plus and keto. Factors fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we're back. Cheers, mates. Cheers to you, Captain. So we have the 911 call to talk about. Um, anything that you find, anything that jumps off the page to you immediately regarding the 911 call? No, uh, and I wish we had a clearer version. I hate when we have a kind of crappy audio. But I think you can decipher it enough. Uh, again, I think this is a weird situation. You know, either you think Sebastian is lying, or you just think he is uh, disturbed, or he's out of his mind. So Sebastian's the one making the call. Atif presumably is in the home with him when this call is going down, and we hear immediately Sebastian sounds to be confused or stuttering. Um, in a state of panic or shock. That's what I hear. That's my, you know, that's my general thought on his behavior. Now I have seen several interviews with, with Sebastian. I've also seen uh, videotape footage of him speaking several times. Mm -hmm. He does on occasion have a little bit of a, a stutter, a little bit of a stammer, um, mm -hmm. So th that's not doesn't it doesn't seem to be uh, my thing is, Captain, I was trying to figure out, was this a put on? Was he putting this on this right. this act? So I have to give him the benefit of the doubt there, and I don't feel like it's a total put on. Now, one thing that I did find weird is several times he starts to say something and then kind of stops and re kind of re gears himself, you know, where he'll start to say um the two which it sounded like he was about to say the two adults or right. the two parents um and then he says uh my my friend's parents both of them 
he he struggles to find the right words and then he says we think they're dead he just it, we think they're dead very fast like that right which i don't know maybe i'm maybe i'm putting this under the microscope too much here because i don't know it's hard to say how anybody would react in this situation but i do feel like where where the stutter and where the stammer might not be a put on I question, is he choosing his words? And why would you take the time to choose your words? Especially when you end the call saying, hurry, fast, fast. Right, but he might not be actually choosing his words. It might just be he's in the moment of speaking, but because he's in such shock, he he is trying to edit himself and his brain because his brain is not functioning correctly. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the interview with him is, he said, I was out of my mind when I was making that call, so possibly you know he might not even remember the call the the fact of the matter is you got two boys that walk into a situation this is their accounts they see the dead mother Mm -hmm. they go up now now you have to check on the father he is brutally murdered unrecognizable he would be unrecognizable maybe even as a you might not even recognize him as a person at that point right um, and then you, and, and yeah, and that room's completely covered in blood. And then you, you got to check on your sister, but before you get to the point where you're checking on your sister, you can hear her mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, so one would assume that you would run to her aid to help her, but, uh, also you might, again, that's the fight or flight mentality. And if your body tells you to fly out of there there's nothing you can do yeah so let's be clear about that his atif's sister was still alive during the the call of the 911 she didn't die until they got her back to the hospital right um but how much the boys the boys and i keep calling them boys they're 18 year old young men at this point right um but they're very sheltered. This is uh, this is upper middle class and online. They're offered re- often report uh, referred to as the boys as well. So I think that's why that's seeped into my psyche here. But so so Sebastian and Atif. Well, hold on. I was saying that they're upper middle class. I think that's important here. Yeah. Because these are eighteen year old kids that were sheltered, very sheltered, and I'd I'd argue to say that they're just upper class kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I found I found that weird, weird when they described them as upper middle class, and yeah. then I saw the neighborhood and the homes in the neighborhood, and I thought, well, if that's upper, I always thought I was middle class. No. And when they said they're upper middle middle class, I thought, wow, I'm poor as dirt. We, we have a <laughs> we have a podcast in a garage. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're uh, not. the homes were very nice, and that's a very nice neighborhood. So uh, to me, that looks like an upper class. Well, let's all right, let's well, get away right. from and that. And Teef's dad was an engineer, so I mean. He had his doctorate. I mean, he was doing well for himself. But they did not help his sister. They did not help his dying sister. Right. But it wasn't, again, that's, you know, so, and some terms you can say that and it makes it seem so bad. They didn't help the dying sister. She she was in a state that neither one of them could have done anything without, they they, they had no medical training. So it wasn't like they could really do anything to help her. Do you think they even opened the door to her room? I I think they did. That's but. one thing I question because I I couldn't find I could find parts of their interview where they where Atif was being asked if he had touched the body of his mother or his father. 
I couldn't find any parts of the actual interview where he was being asked questions directly about his sister. Yeah, well, I think he said he knew there was nothing he could do to help her. Right. And that he said, that that's the only part I could you, find. You know, well, his statement was, "I don't even know how to put a, you know, I don't even know how to put a bandaid on." Or something like that, which I think was kind of a dumb statement. But this was also in a situation where it's like if I came into the garage and somebody bludgeoned you and you're hanging on to dear life, I can't do nothing. So I have two options. Uh, Sit there in the room. I could call and sit in the room with you and, you know, lose my appetite. Or I call the police and I step in the other room and you know, pray to God that the ambulance gets there quick enough to save you because I don't mm-hmm. have the means in order to save you. Yeah. I, I just wanted to hear from his, from his mouth that they had in fact opened the door and ch- in some form checked on her. Now here's the other thing. Yeah. I, I don't know if I definitively ever saw him uh, or heard him say that. I also wanted to hear him say definitively that he touched the body of his sister because you here's what I'm what I'm getting at for him to to lay out the assessment that I could there was nothing I could do there was nothing we could do to help her or to save her mm. I, I want there to be some kind of uh investigation by him to arrive to that conclusion right but there is also the statement by uh, Sebastian that we think that somebody is in the house mm-hmm. or possibly is in the house so based on their story, these two guys go in. They find the mom. They find the dad. Then there's the sister. They hear the sister. Or maybe they see the sister. I'm, we're not really clear on that. But for whatever reason, when they go outside to make the 911 call, they don't flee the scene. Right. They say, we're here. We're going to flag you down. And we're staying outside because we think that maybe this killer is still there. And then police want to come out and say, well, that's a little odd, don't you think? Why would you just hang out outside if you think the killer's in the house? Well, look, again, there might be 18-year-old young men, but they're naive. And they they can be as intellectual as they want. These guys are not street smart at all. These guys are very sheltered. So uh, if it was me... And I walk into the house and there's this attack and I call the police and I say, hey, you get here. The police probably should tell you, hey, you might want to go outside. Mm-hmm. The person might still be in the house. Mm-hmm. And there might be some evidence, some noise that they heard that they were. They went, oh, shit. Oh, shit. Do you hear something in the basement? Somebody might be in the house. I'm finding a weapon and I'm going outside and I'm giving myself some space and I'm going to keep my eyes on that house. And if somebody comes out of that house. You know, it's go time. You got to fight for your life at that point. You have three dead people inside. Well, and you, you've you made the right call, essentially, because remember, you know, when I worked security for years, one thing that they taught us was if you are trying to protect someone, okay, let's say there's a break-in. Kung fu. Let's say there's a break-in to the garage right mm-hmm. now, okay? And let's pretend that this garage has many different rooms. And we a, keep pretending the garage this episode. And a couple different levels as well. Wouldn't yeah. it be great if the garage actually did have several levels? Three and levels. Rules? Anyway, one day, my friend. Four, um, four levels. So if somebody came into the garage and they wanted to harm or kill you, okay? 
right. doubt it. But let me tell you what, what my training, what, what we were taught during this training was that unless you have, unless you have some kind of setup where you have like a panic room, mm-hmm. which most homes would not have a panic room, not, not a real legit panic room. Not telling you if I have one or not. But what I'm saying is that if my job is to protect you from anything, I'm, I'm your security. <laughs> you have to listen to this. All right. I hope my security works out a little bit more. No, but what the training taught us or has big weapons was that if my job is to protect you against anything and somebody Mm -hmm. breaks into this home or to a place where you are staying and I am guarding you, Mm -hmm. my number one object, my number one um, objective is to get you outside. Mm-hmm. It, unless there's a legit panic room, the numbers say that as soon as I get you outside, out of that building, rather than trying to hide you in a closet somewhere, or rather than try to hide you in a room that's far away from the break-in point, right. that the, your your numbers of living and surviving that break-in and that attack significantly increase if I get you outside. So you, in fact, did the right thing. And they, in fact be it that they be naive 18 year olds in fact did the right thing the the thing that i keep going back to though is what how much information did they collect regarding the sister before they decided that 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 one there's nothing we can do for her before we flee the home and two we can't flee the home with because there's a chance that if if she's in a certain state you might be able to bring her with you out of the house. Right. I, and I, and that didn't happen as well. And, and, and I think where the police are questioning their moves are, they're saying, well, yes, you went outside, but you were, you're like, you're like 20 feet, 20, 25 feet, you know, uh, f- from the home. Right. But what do you want them to do? Run, run a couple blocks away. What do you want them to do? Well, actually, thank God they didn't because they wouldn't have been there to flag down the police. Right. Um, so no, I'm not saying that that's, I'm not questioning what they did. I'm bringing up the police and the, and, and the investigators thoughts and suspicions on their moves throughout that evening. Right. And that's just their opinions of what they think this means or that means, Oh, what, what was his demeanor on the 911 call? What was their demeanor when we got there? This is all speculation. Do we have any actual evidence? Yeah. Well, uh, bust out the luminol. This whole place is a crime scene. So they're going to use the luminol to spray down. Uh, the crime scene. They're looking for evidence of blood that's been washed away. Don't ever say that at a party. Hey, break out the luminol. It's time to party. Um, but what they find here, and this is very troubling, they when they conduct this test, it showed an enormous amount of blood on the shower walls. So the killer had used the shower before leaving. The killer hopped in the shower, washed himself, herself off, and then left the scene. Um, and now the police are wondering this. Okay. This is a very, this is not a normal thing to go down at a, at a murder scene at a triple homicide scene. Right. Um, so this again is going to lead them back to the thought that the, the attacker knew the family and knew the family intimately knew them to the point where they could, they would have access to the home and they would also not be in such a hurry to leave the home that they would clean themselves up before leaving the home. Right. And like you said, this is not very typical, but we have tons of blood. 
and the room that the father was killed in. Tons of blood. We have tons of splatter everywhere. Yeah, so if the killer had left the home in the clothes that they arrived in, that they wore during the attack, and mm-hmm. didn't bother to wash themselves off, you would see a person covered in blood from head to toe leaving the well, crime scene. Right, and leaving evidence as they went. So possibly this is, this is something that could be considered like a hit type move. Mm-hmm. Killer goes in, kills its victims, cleans itself up, cleans themselves up. Um, and we have hairs found in the shower as well. Mm-hmm. And those hairs that they're going to find, they're going to find over 20 some hairs mm-hmm. in that shower. And that's going to be of Sebastian Burns. But he was staying at the house for three days prior. Right. So there's your reason why if there is going to be any hairs in that shower that's reasons why well let's let's talk about why the i mean we are it's obvious why the killer would take a shower but let's talk about like what you said if this was a hit or if somebody had came in to kill the family for some reason Mm -hmm. it it has happened in other crimes there's other crimes that i've read about where the killer has in fact done something that was totally unnecessary at a crime scene where they've they've killed people and then they they decided to sit in the kitchen and drink a few beers before they left or they had a bowl of cereal or they took a they took a shower to clean themselves up or well, I'm just joking but but you would have think about this mm-hmm. if somebody was planning if someone had planned this murder and somebody had watched the family because the first thing you got to question is your immediate thought would be as soon as you kill this family that you would want to flee the scene as fast as possible to evade capture, right? Mm-hmm. That's your immediate first thought. But if I had been watching this family and I had been planning to kill this family, now keep in mind, maybe I did my surveillance on the home and on the family the week before. Mm-hmm. And my and my surveillance ended. I watched them for a, a course of three or four days the week before. Well, According to my surveillance, my belief would be my knowledge would tell me that only three people live in that home. Right. And so having just killed all three of them, I may not be in a huge hurry to leave the home. I I might take a bunch of noise, right? I might take Mm -hmm. the time to clean myself up. If I brought a duffel bag with a with a change of clothes in that duffel bag, Mm -hmm. annihilated this family, hopped in the shower, threw my bloody clothes in the duffel bag, put on the fresh clothes, walked out of there. All you would see is one very handsome, very clean man walking out with the duffel bag. Right. That's, um, that's opinion. (laughs) but uh, so uh, what I'm getting at is it's not impossible. It doesn't have to be a thief or Sebastian or the two of them having lived there or staying there that took the shower. Right. So the the cops are again, and let's reiterate the fact that the cops then question them for hours. They do test. There's no trace of blood. I mean, one would argue that, Oh, well they took a shower. So that's why there's no blood because they washed it all off. There's a lot of blood. A lot of blood. I would I would actually have to argue that someone would have to take quite a long shower to make sure they didn't have any any blood on them. Mm-hmm. And so, again, these guys are not mastermind killers that we know of. So would they, would they even know uh, if they had any residue left on them? Who knows? Well, I think, but I think therein lies the problem. 
is that let's say Atif and Sebastian are totally innocent and all they did was stumble onto a crime scene. Mm -hmm. The problem here is you find nothing on these guys. You would actually, if they were just victims that had stumbled onto a crime scene, you would, I would actually believe that I would find something on them. And, and to me, that is why it looks very suspicious. It's not so much that. Why, why would you find something on them? Because some of those rooms were covered in, in blood. The, the, the father's bedroom was covered in, in matter. Right. And I'm sure whatever shoes they were wearing had evidence on them, but because they were at the crime scene, cops never reported that. But if you just walk into rooms and you don't touch anything, then what are they going to find on you? I just other I, than your shoes. I do have a hard time believing that they wouldn't have touched anything. And I don't necessarily mean a victim. Um again, but this is these are upper class kids. They're sheltered. I'm talking about who cares about sheltered or not sheltered. I'm talking about if I walk into a room and I see a dead body, whether I choose to You're going to run up and hug it? What no. What I'm saying is whether whether I choose to to investigate further and touch the body or not, I probably wouldn't. What I'm saying is if I walked into a room and I found someone dead, whether it be a family member or not, there's a good chance I might have to grab a wall to brace myself from falling over. I might have to go down to one knee because I'm I'm in total shock. Right, but who says that they, that they didn't? The blood evidence says that they didn't. No, you just the they didn't touch the evidence. You know what I mean? So and then the other thing Well, they too. wouldn't have, they didn't do it in the father's bedroom. Right, but that could be as simple as them walking in and I mean you don't have to walk into that room to see that guy's dead. No, I I know that. I know that. But what I'm saying is I I find it very strange that given the description of the crime scene and how much blood there was mm-hmm. that these guys had nothing on them. But they're in the house for how long or probably 3 probably 3 to 4 minutes. So, right. So within three three to four minutes, but I, they're making a call to 911, and they're waiting outside on the curb. Right, but I don't have to convince you. I'm just telling you my suspicions. This this seems very suspicious to me. No, no, I, I get the leaning that way, but I, look, I, like I'm saying, I think there's that there's a uh, there's a explanation for that because one, the first person you're seeing is not so brutal, and then the next, I think, you know, if they're telling the truth that once they got to the father's room. That, that was it. That was the tipping point. This is awful, and we need to get out of here. But it, but to add to your point with, with them being, uh, you say, sheltered, I actually think with them being sheltered that they would be even more shocked and even more unable to control themselves at the, at the crime scene. Yeah, but I think that's what led them to the flight mentality. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They... It, I think it was quickly, let's get the hell out of here. Mm-hmm. We don't know what's going on here. And if somebody is, um, if the killer is still here, we need to get out of here. Uh, way more so than than maybe somebody else. The initial questioning of Sebastian and Atif ends at 8.30 a.m. that day when an officer takes the two men to buy clothes. They go, remember, they provided the clothes to the detectives, so they need something to wear. Mm-hmm. They take them to buy some clothes, and they take them to eat breakfast. Afterwards, the officer takes Sebastian and Atif to the Bellevue Motel, and the two having been up all night, they're now at the hotel. They presumably sleep until about 2 p.m. that afternoon. Right. At 2 p.m., they are picked up again by detectives and taken back to the Bellevue Police Department for further questioning. 
This also during this time they also conduct fingerprinting and photographing of the two young men. They are let go at about 6 p.m. They are released from this uh, at 6 p.m. From there, the two go to a video store, and Sebastian and Atif rent a VCR in several movies. At 9 p.m., Blockbuster. At 9 p.m., Sebastian calls his father to tell the tell him what has happened. Right. So, a couple things here. Um, so they're staying in a hotel that's being furnished for them by. Um, the police, right? right? So, and that, that makes sense. You, you have these kids, if they're not involved, they're definitely victims. And this kid's whole life has changed because his whole family has been murdered, mm-hmm. but there also are number one suspect slash lead mm-hmm. that we have. So we need to keep them close. So you sleep all day, then you get questioned and then you probably don't want to go out or do anything. No. So a, a lot of people have, really kind of speculated that well these guys are definitely guilty they went to blockbuster and rented some movies uh i don't know look you're you're two 18 year old boys this tragic event just happened you were up all night being questioned you were then questioned again um maybe you're sitting in the hotel room hey the hotel room might not have cable or maybe it has cable and there's just nothing on and you go, hey, let's just go rent some movies. So Public can... access channel was all it had. I'm joking. I don't. Right, I, right. don't I don't know that. But but it's just funny to me that you know people will sit there and speculate. Oh, you know they rented some movies. They're they're murderers. Like I don't know. I think that stuff is a stretch. Nobody. You would not know what you would do in those circumstances if it you know until it happens. Well, I agree with that 100. percent I do have to call into question myself because when i saw this report that they had done this i found it a i didn't find it particularly like overboard weird or strange i did question it a little bit but then i remembered uh way back when when we covered casey anthony and she had gone to the video store mm-hmm. and i'm probably i i don't know that i can't recall my reaction but my guess my gut tells me i probably held her feet to the flames for going to the video store so yeah, I should I should do so I guess in this case as well. Um, yeah, but she's a crazy bitch. I mean, so uh, one thing I did find strange is the 9 p.m. phone call from Sebastian to his father. This seems like a very traumatic event to somebody to anybody. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I I feel like I I really wonder the delay for that phone call. Um, and obviously Sebastian's not here with us to, to explain why there was what I would call a delay. Maybe that, maybe he felt that was his only and first opportunity to actually make that phone call. And it was something he had wanted to do all day long. However, I see that there's some windows of time where that phone call could have been made and did not happen. Yeah. Yeah. And look, I think, uh, Again, there's all these little actions that people put on to people to go, hey, they're guilty. They rented movies. They <laughs> they watched The Lion King. First of all, what 18-year-old boys are going to go get salad and some wine and watch The Lion King together? That's how I spent every Friday night. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to get another co-host. That's how I spent last Friday night. No. <laughs> um, here's the thing, Captain, though. The, the But, but I, I got to harp on this phone call for a little bit because – 
had I been with you or with any of my other friends and discovered right. their me, friends. Let me finish Go my ahead. thought though. Go ahead. The reason why, you know, like I was saying, everybody harps on this or that. For all we know, they go right from the murder scene, the crime scene, to questioning. And the cops might have told them since they're 18, they're on that cusp. They might have said, look, um, they might have asked, do you need to call your dad? Or you need to call your parents? Or maybe they didn't. Or maybe they called them for them. I mean, there could be some little tiny piece of information that we don't know. That's why I'm not going to harp on harp on it too much. I don't know if it leads either way. He either, it was the first opportunity he felt that he could call, or he knew that he had to wait a, a, a time period before he was able to call his father. Again, though, there there are clear windows of time that he would have been able to call them, but... We have to factor in some other things. We don't know what his parents' schedules were. Maybe during those windows of time, he he believed he would be unable to get a hold of either his father or mother. The other thing, too, is I guess I'm questioning why he delayed calling his parents. And the reason being is um, what I should probably question is his relationship with his parents. You know, I'm kind of looking at it in my shoes. I'm looking at it like, look, I'm in my 30s. If something that traumatic happened to me, probably the first thing I would probably want to do is call somebody that that makes me feel some kind of sense of safety and security. And that would be one of my parents. The thing, though, is I have a good relationship with my parents. I'm I shouldn't assume that he has a good relationship with his. Yeah. And but also we have Sebastian hanging out with the thief and a thief is his best friend. And how much consoling is he doing for a thief that just lost his father, his mother, and his older sister? That's true. He could be tending to his his good friend. Now, on the day after the bodies were found, in the early afternoon, Sebastian and a thief go to Barnes & Noble bookstore. At about 3 p.m., the detectives locate the two men at the bookstore, and they request another meeting with each of them. Mm-hmm. A thief put participates in a three-hour taped interview, and Sebastian does an hour-and-a-half taped interview with the investigators. And at no point, these guys are asking for a lawyer. Well, not only that, they're cooperating. They've handed over their clothes. Anytime these investigators and detectives are asking for interviews, they're doing that. And they're allowing the interviews to be taped. They're probably writing things, uh, writing statements as well during this time. They've submitted to fingerprints, to other forms of test. They're they're cooperating in every form and fashion that you would ask of a person, expect of a person, and they're doing that. Now, on July 15th in the morning, the Canadian consulate uh, calls to obtain permission from the Bellevue Police Department to return Sebastian and Atif to Sebastian's parents who live in Vancouver. Right, okay, so to make this a little more clear. So when Sebastian ends up talking with his father, his father starts going, okay, they're questioning these 18-year-old boys. They need to come home. Mm -hmm. This is not right. So what they do, like we said, they're in a hotel room that is being, they're being put up by the police department. Mm-hmm. So they have their their contact, even though that they had contact with the detectives and stuff themselves and had their numbers, they didn't call. It's kind of like when you call into work sick, you know, you'd be like 16 and you're, you're sick, and you, but you don't want to call in. Mm-hmm. So you 
to try to get your parents to call in for you. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's kind of the same thing. I think they didn't want to talk to the detectives. I think they were also nervous. They're being told by Sebastian's father, hey, come home. You need to come home. If they're questioning you multiple times, you need to come home. And so they have their counselor call. They say, hey, it's fine. They're allowed to go. They're they're not doing anything wrong. So they leave. And then what does the police department do? They run to the press and then tell the press that these two individuals, they're fleeing. Yeah, and the funny thing is when you go back and you find newspaper reports uh, from July of 94, (laughs) it's obvious that that's what the media believed as well. That's what's reported, that the two fled to Canada. And that's why I wanted to point out that a consulate employee called Bellevue police asking for permission stating that you know basically they're saying is it okay if these two young men leave Mm -hmm. is it okay that they return to Canada and you got to keep in mind here Sebastian that's his family that's where he lives that's where he's from he was just visiting and then furthermore Atif his family's been killed Sebastian's family might be the closest thing he has to family at this point Right, but I'd also say at this point in his life, you know, Canada is more his home. You know, he's a he's a citizen of Canada, right? Yeah, he, he, I don't think he's an American citizen. He had lived in Canada for the majority of his life. They had lived in multiple countries, but but he lived in Canada for the majority of his life. Well, and the thing that's going to happen once he gets to Canada is he misses his family's funeral, and that becomes a big deal. Yeah, so we have at approximately 10 a.m. on July 15th, 1994, the lead detective on the case in Bellevue learns that the Rafay funeral will take place that day. And then that evening, Sebastian and Atif, they are now at the Burns residence in Canada, and they're watching the evening news. And that is when Atif discovers from watching the news that his family's funeral was planned and took place that day without him being there. Well, I guess in the traditional Muslim uh, traditions, I guess you have to be buried within a certain time period. Okay. So it's like, I want to say three to four days. So the argument here is that he would have known based on tradition. But again, here's what's weird is we don't know. We don't know this dynamic. We know that his family's Muslim, but we don't know how orthodox or unorthodox they are. But his, his, um, surrounding family is the one that that took care of the the funeral arrangements so he might not have known right um it's a little odd though i mean i think i could totally see sebastian's dad saying you guys need to come home um you know does atif come with you or not well I, i say i say yes bring him with us but what i thought was interesting was when uh, Sebastian's dad was talking about this and said, we're watching the evening news and we see that uh, not only there was a funeral, but they're going, Hey, a thief missed the funeral. What's up with that? Right. Mm-hmm. That, that the mom said off camera, if you watch this, uh, this was on the confession tapes, uh, Netflix confession tapes. It's episode one and two. She's off camera and she says, Hey, it wasn't that he was just upset. He literally, like yelled at the TV mm-hmm. and like almost like dove towards the TV in anger. Well, and in all fairness too, I don't know Muslim tradition well enough to say that, you know, how many days 
is the rule. Right. But I just want to point out to the listeners that are that are wandering. So we have the bodies are discovered at 2 a.m. on July 13th. The date we're talking about is the funeral would have been on July 15th. So two days later. Now, was it tradition that it's three days, four days? I don't know. But what I'm getting at no, is... No, no, what, the, what no. What I'm saying is the... The the protocol is that they have to be buried within that time period, within a certain amount of time. Right, right, right. right. What I'm what I wanted to point out here was that we're stating that there's a good chance that Tief would have known what the tradition would be and should have had an idea of what was going to happen. Right. If that's even if that is the case, if he does have that knowledge, what I'm po- pointing out here is. They left the morning of the 15th and took a bus back to Vancouver. I don't know how many hours it took them to get there. What I'm getting at is this was only two days later. So if Atif thought that they had three or four days, whatever it is, maybe he thought that somebody would contact him and he could just hop on a bus and go right back down and attend the services. I don't don't know what the, the time frame is on that, but... Obviously, he took this bus and it only took him a few hours to or took hours to get there. Right. Now, a lot of this stuff, they're going to say, well, why did this happen or why did this happen? And Atif and Sebastian always kind of come back to this same explanation. We were young. Mm. We're, we're just kids. Yeah. Mm. You know, there's there's certain times in your life that you have to kind of step up and, and be more adult like. I think um, whether it was Atif's fault or his family's fault that he wasn't at the funeral, I think there's evidence that shows that he was uh, upset about it, and so I would I would assume that that's not his doing. If why would you be upset about something that you decided not to be at? Mm-hmm. Um, so e- either here nor there. There's no. Uh, this is just all speculation. This this is not real evidence. Yeah, and obviously the Bellevue Police Department they are putting a thief and Sebastian through the ringer here, and it looks like these two. Well, it looks like they're the main suspects uh, if you follow this investigation. Now, we should point out that the detectives, they did have other suspects or they should have had other suspects. And who were these people and how did they get this information? Well, within just days following the murders, the Bellevue Police Department, they received three tips through other law enforcement agencies regarding the horrific triple homicide. One was from a constable with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP. One from an FBI informant. Mm -hmm. And one from the intelligence division of the Seattle Police. These tips are significant too, Captain, because they provided names, addresses, phone numbers, and the correct murder weapon Mm -hmm. and motives for the murders as well. The Bellevue Police Department discarded all of these leads. Well, let's, let's go through these leads, shall we? So the first one from the RCMP, a confidential informant contacted Constable Galinas of the RCMP. This informant told the constable that a man, and we don't have the name of this man, but the name was provided from the informant to the constable. This man told the informant that he had been offered $20,000 to kill an East Indian family that had previously lived in Vancouver, Canada and had moved to Bellevue, Washington. Right. Galinas decided that this information was regarding the Rafay killings. The informant told Galinas he had heard this two days before the murders were committed. Uh, Officer Galinas contacted the Bellevue 
police department and the lead investigators on the Rafay murders mm-hmm. and communicated this information to them. The Bellevue investigators traveled to Vancouver. So I, I, I guess I wasn't fair when saying that they didn't follow up on these leads because they attempted to with this one. They traveled to Vancouver mm-hmm. and they knocked on the man's door. Uh, they attempted to speak with this man on two occasions. However, the man was either not home or just simply did not answer the door uh, uh, for the police department. So the Bellevue police, they ultimately returned to the United States without having made any contact with this tip, with this tipster. I mean, he called. At least he called in the evidence, Mm -hmm. right? But maybe that's it. Hey, this is what I heard. That's all I know. Don't show up at my house. Mm -hmm. Because obviously if people are putting out you know, $20,000 on a hit on a family. You think they're not going to kill this guy? Well, the other thing too is, uh, we have to be clear that the, the offering was for $20,000 to kill an East Indian family. It didn't specifically name the Rafay family. However, you have to wonder, is this lead in fact talking about the Rafays? Because it it's, I think it's very likely, if not exactly the right family who fits the description that the informant provided. I mean, I don't know how many people fit the description of an East Indian family that had previously lived in Vancouver, Canada and moved to Bellevue, Washington. Right. Recently. Recently. Right. So uh, is this the person who murdered the Rafay family? Well, what's the motive? Well, the motive would be the $20,000 that you're offered to no, what's the, why would you put the head out for, are you paying $20,000 to have this family killed? Well, we haven't got to that point yet. We're, we're, we're still discussing if this person actually carried it out. And the, the thing is obviously, no, this, this confidential informant did not say who had murdered the Rafay family when giving this information. Right, right. He, he was just, just simply saying. said somebody was offered a contract to murder a family, right? Uh, it's possible this man didn't accept the contract or the money. However, since he talked about the contract before the Rafay family was murdered, at the very least, investigators could have discovered who wanted the Rafay family killed, and that's what you're getting at, right? Who who was? If you had bothered to speak with this man, you could at least find out who was the person offering up the money offering up the contract because if this guy didn't accept it, somebody else could have right or he, or he or she could have found other means of carrying out this, these killings. Well, there's another uh, lead as well, which is pretty solid. It comes from the FBI. Yeah. The, an FBI informant. This is about five days after the homicides, the Bellevue police department received a call from the FBI advising that one of their informants, had come forward providing information about the murder of the Rafay family. The FBI informant, and again, we the name has been withheld from this information. Do you want to reenact this call? Uh, no. <laughs> to- told a detective of the Bellevue police that a militant Islamic faction said that Tariq Rafay, this faction. Is, yeah. Mm-hmm. This is uh, Atif's father, should die because of his beliefs and teachings about the Quran. The FBI informant also said that several days after the homicides, a member of this militant Islamic faction came to his house and was worried that the FBI informant had seen a baseball bat that he and some other men had been carrying around in their car. 
So because of this, the the FBI informant believed that the murder weapon used to kill the Rafay family was, was in fact baseball, the baseball yeah. bat, which they didn't know at the time. There was, you know, they had to do some uh, tests to make sure that it was a baseball bat that they believed was the murder weapon. And but ultimately, that's where their investigation took them. Right, that, but that they find out that right. that they think it was in fact the baseball bat that had killed the family. Mm-hmm. And this is where the the Bellevue investigators' ears should perk up, you know, because this. This should be considered a credible lead because the informant knew the murder weapon before this information was was common knowledge yeah. before it was made public. And first of all, it's the motherfucking FBI. Mm-hmm. FBI. It's not like so like Tony down the street told me about this guy with a baseball bat. It's the FBI. You listen to them. You know what I'm saying? Well, and, and the, the informant working for the FBI provided, like we said, provided names, addresses, and phone numbers of these people to the police so hey. they could follow up on this lead. Instead of following up on the lead, they basically said that the investigators basically thought that this FBI informant was crazy. Right. Like, oh, this this person that came forward with this information is crazy. Therefore, we are not going to follow up on this. Why, why are they crazy? Um, I don't know. I, is, I, right. I mean, that that's how dismissive they were of the lead. They don't say this person's crazy because of A, B, and C, or we went and spoke to this person face-to-face and have figured out that they're not a credible source. Right. And so instead, they just dismiss it and say the person's crazy. And and it's not a foreign faction, right? You didn't say foreign faction. I said Islamic faction. Faction. Yeah. Right. But isn't, it like, uh, isn't that the John JonBenet Ramsey thing? Well, that that claims to be a, a, a foreign faction. Right, right, right. Crime. Okay, so, but what is their motive? It's not just his, what were they trying to kill him for? Um, the way that it's described is that his, his teachings about the Quran and his beliefs about the Quran, and I'll let you go into that. So I, I think the main thing was he was an engineer. He did some number figurings and re- realized that true East where they pray to was actually off mm-hmm. by like three degrees or something like that by a minuscule amount, very small amount. So, and this guy was a engineer, but also did a lot of stuff with architecture. And so it was one of those things where, you know, essentially you go, well, now all these mosques and all these places in uh, Canada need to be turned. You need to jiggle them a bit, right? We need to pick up all these buildings and move them. And obviously you can't do that. But I think he was pretty vocal about that. And again, I, I, you know, murdering is stupid for one, but to, you know, to take somebody, you're, you're a Muslim and you got another Muslim and there's just a couple things he disagrees with you on. And so you want to kill him. Mm-hmm. That makes absolutely no sense to me. It makes zero sense. Well, and you know, when I read this information about how dismissive they were, the they being the investigators regarding this lead, you know what popped in my my pea brain immediately? Your pointed head. Yeah, was uh was Art. Art who we spoke to regarding the Mara Murray case. Right. And he's retired US Marshal. And the first thing that he told us is in any investigation to work it properly, you should go where the evidence takes you. Right. Or even, you know, they, they didn't even follow up on this lead is what I'm getting at. Right. You, you know, the and, lead that gave you what the murder weapon is. Correct. 
Correct. So even if it, it just investigate it, even for for some point to the point where you can find out and make a correct determination if it's a, in fact a credible lead or not. And the third and final lead is when the Seattle Police Intelligence Division called the Bellevue Police Department and told them that they had information that the Fakwa, and I'm not saying that right. <laughs> F-U-Q-R-A, Fakra. Hey, dropping those F-bombs on the show, Fakra. I like the chakra of the Fakra. <laughs> You're um, a real Fakra today. The, it's, a, it's a radical militant organization that they may have been involved in these homicides. And this is how the U.S. State Department describes the Fakra. It's an Islamic sect that seeks to purify Islam through violence established sometime in the early 1980s. Most cells are located in North America and the Caribbean. FACRA members have attacked a variety of targets that they view as enemies of Islam, including Muslims themselves. In addition to uh, not following up on this lead, the Bellevue Police Department, they did not question any members of the Islamic community in Bellevue to find out if if Dr. Rafay, Atif's father, had conflicts with any Muslims in the area. Oh, well, and like we said, I mean, let's think about this, okay? One, you, you have this engineer coming out and saying, hey, true East might not be true East. Mm-hmm. Going against, you know, your holy grail, the, the Quran, right? So then you have this other informant saying, hey, there was this hit put out. Well, maybe that hit was put out that anybody in this extreme group, right? Mm-hmm. This extreme religious group, that 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 money goes to you if you create this hit. You see what I'm saying? So it could be connected. They could both be connected, both leads. Well, not only both. And here's here's one thing I question. And this is one thing that I think that the the Bellevue Police Department messed up on is that I think when they receive this information, you're you're talking about these are potentially huge leads. All three of these are complicated leads mm-hmm. at that. They're receiving all these leads within days of each other. And here's what I'm guessing went down. I'm guessing that the, the investigators probably thought, well, how can any of these leads be credible when we're receiving another lead that's so complicated, just like the one we just received? Meaning that even if one of them is true, then two of them are false. Not and, necessarily. And, 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 and no, and that's why you point out a good thing that two of them could be connected. Hell, all three of these right. could be connected. And then with the Fakra, the Fakra, the Fakra, they, there was another murder that took place where uh, they were responsible for the death uh, of a family, a Muslim family. And that father also was an engineer and was speaking up against different things of the Muslim faith. So I think we should leave you with that thought. That's the thought that we're leaving you with today is the possibility that not only one of these tips could be right. All three of them could be correct and they could be connected. And I think some, some of that too, with the Bellevue police department with when something is that big and also let's just be frank about it. This happened before nine 11. And so I believe if it happens after 9-11, maybe they take these leads a little more serious. But it, these are also leads that are they're bigger than you. Mm-hmm. You would need to get somebody like the FBI involved. Well, and that's a, another part where they messed up. 
Think about this. One of the tips is coming from an informant that is working with or helping the FBI in some form. Right. So therefore, if you relay that information to me and you work for the FBI, Mm -hmm. that's when I'm going, I got this triple homicide. Seems pretty complicated. We're getting weird, complicated leads and tips coming in. Mm -hmm. Uh, Guess what, Mr. FBI agent? Thank you for bringing this information to our attention. However, this information came from you, from your division. We need you to step in here and, and oversee this or at the very least oversee that one tip. Yeah, oversee or, that one lead. Or please contact your higher ups and have them get involved. So yeah, I mean there's there's a lot more to get into this case and uh let's do that uh tomorrow. Thanks to everybody for joining us in the very cold wintry garage today freezing cold. i still got my coat on Captain. i'm cr- freezing my fakra off i hope everybody out there stays warm and enjoy the rest of your day until tomorrow be good be kind and don't litter On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.